Hello and welcome to the podcast for the August 2010 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm delighted to be joined by Audrey Seskia from TLO. Welcome Audrey. Hello Richard. Let's start Audrey with a phase 4 study and this is looking at bevacizumab for the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. What intrigues me here Audrey, I think this is the first time I've come across a phase 4 study. What can a phase 4 study achieve over and above what we found out in phase three. Phase three trials, while they remain the gold standard for assessment of new treatments, they are performed in strictly defined patient populations, while phase four studies they offer the opportunity to assess treatment in a broad patient population, more representative of patients seen in routine practice. So this is in fact a, a post-marketing assessment of the drug safety and efficacy. And the primary objective of the study was to assess the safety profile of bevacizumab in combination with chemotherapies as the first-line treatment of advanced or recurrent non-squamous and non-small cell lung cancer. Thanks very much for that, Audrey. And do go on now and just summarize, if you would, the methodology and the key results here. More than 2,000 patients from 40 countries were recruited in this open-label, multi-center, single-group trial. They received bevacizumab in combination with standard chemotherapy regimen, which was at the investigator discretion. The safety profile of bevacizumab was assessed by recording all reported adverse events associated with the treatment. The results of this trial have confirmed that bevacizumab added to different chemotherapy regimens was reasonably well tolerated, with main side effects being thromboembolic events, hypertension, proteinuria, and bleeding. No unexpected toxic effects were reported. So these findings confirmed the established and manageable safety profile of bevacizumab in the first-line treatment. And it also provides insights into the safety profile of bevacizumab in combination with uh, the chemotherapy regimens which are most widely used in the clinical practice. And overall, I think this is uh, some good news for uh, lung cancer compared to the recent reversal of fortune for this drug in the breast cancer setting. And next, Audrey, an important epidemiological research article. And this is looking at the association between body mass index or raised body mass index and cancer. This association is something we've already known about. Is that right? Yes, there is evidence linking excess of weight and obesity to cancer. But data has mainly come from North American and European populations. And it was uncertain whether there would be the same link in agents' population given, for example, the difference in adiposity for the same BMI. So it's why this study is quite important. And go on, Audrey, and explain how this study was done, because the numbers we're dealing with are very large, aren't they? Yes, nearly half a million people. Um, In fact, this study used uh, data from the Asia-Pacific Court Studies Collaboration. It's a large collaborative data pooling project involving individual participation data from 39 cohorts. And Audrey, do summarise the key results. Which specific cancers were associated with a raised BMI? Well, the study found that among individuals with a BMI higher than 18.5 kilograms per meter square, there was a positive and continuous association between BMI and all cancer mortality. The most common cancer site overall was lung, followed by stomach, liver and large intestine. So what are the conclusions of the authors and what are the the health policy issues arising from this study, do you think? Well, the authors conclude that as well as in North American and European populations, overweight and obese individuals in Asia-Pacific population have a significantly increased risk of mortality from cancer. 
and therefore strategies to prevent individuals from becoming overweight and obese in age are needed to reduce the burden of cancer that is expected if the obesity epidemic continues. Next, Audrey, a review, and this concerns people with cancer who also have mental illness. This is a very interesting but also a controversial area. What are the main issues here? Well, yes, it's a very interesting review about cancer diagnosis in people with severe mental illness, which here will refer to schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and include other mental disorders only if there are comorbid diagnoses such as substance misuse. In fact, the published work so far, while conflicting sometimes, tends to suggest that patients with severe mental illness might be at risk for specific cancers because of their lifestyle, in particular smoking. The review also discusses disparities in access to treatment and care, and indeed these patients are less likely to access cancer screening, but the evidence is not sufficient to assess whether there are barriers specific to this population that could be addressed to increase uptake of screening. Moreover, they have a higher cancer fatality rate than the general population and this could be explained by the specific challenges in treating these patients with severe mental illness. These challenges include medical comorbidities, drug interaction, lack of capacity and difficulties in coping with the treatment as a result of uh, psychiatric symptoms. So what needs to be done by both by oncologists and mental health specialists do you think to improve the situation for mentally ill people who have cancer? Well, it's clear that these disparities in care need to be addressed by all clinicians involved in the treatment and the first step might be at least to be aware of these problems. Finally, Audrey, a review about HBV-associated head and neck cancer. What is the clinical issue here? Well, head and neck cancer is the sixth most common cancer worldwide. And also the incidence overall in the USA has fallen in recent years, consistent with the decrease in tobacco use, an increase in the incidence of oropharyngeal cancer, specifically in the tonsil and the tongue base, has been observed in the USA, but also in Sweden, Netherlands and in the UK. Unlike most tobacco-related head and neck tumors, patients with oropharyngeal carcinoma usually do not have a history of tobacco or alcohol use. Instead, their tumors are positive for oncogenic forms of HPV. So is there a specific or are there specific subtypes of HPV implicated here then? Yes, most of HPV-associated head and neck cancer are linked to HPV-16. Okay, so can you give examples of some of the issues here? Well, we clearly need to better understand the epidemiology behind why diseases arise predominantly in men and whether the natural history of oral HPV infections differ in men and women. We also need to determine the best method to detect the virus. And also, while it's now accepted that HPV status is a prognostic factor for overall survival and progression-free survival, we need more evidence to determine if it can also be a predictive marker of response to treatment. And clearly, future clinical trials will need, at the very least, to stratify for HPV status. Thanks, Audrey. And staying with HPV... There's, yeah. a, there's an important conference coming up later in the year that you want to mention. So yes, for those interested in HPV-associated cancer, they should have a look at the Lancet conference to be held in Amsterdam in November. And you can find all the information on the Lancet.com on the conference tab. Thank you very much, Audrey. A very interesting issue this month. Uh, that was Audrey Seskier from TLO. And thanks to her. And thank you all for listening. Highlights there from the August 2010 issue of TLO. We'll see you next month.